Secrets can destroy things, like the home that the Overton sisters shared with their parents, Frank and Nancy, near Atlantic City. The fire that killed the girls' parents was ruled arson. Could it be possible that secrets drove one of the sisters to torch their family's home? Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. We're going to investigate another compelling true crime story today, where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. This is Season 5, Episode 8. Our book this week is The Fire She Set, and our guest is Phyllis Mantelli. We'll check in with Phyllis after we investigate this fascinating book. We're also going to talk about ideas for how anyone can be what I like to call a different kind of PI. Not a private investigator like me, but a person of impact in your community. In June of 1974, Lee Overton Boyd was just 17 years old, the oldest of four sisters. Her world was turned upside down when the condo where her family was living caught fire in the middle of the night. She escaped, and so did her sisters, but both of Lee's parents died in that fire. As if that wasn't enough tragedy for them to deal with, rumors began to swirl that one of the girls purposefully set that fire. Attorneys were hired, and a lie detector test was given to at least one of the sisters. No one was ever charged in Frank and Nancy's deaths. Lee was on the brink of adulthood and ready to move into another phase of her life. Years passed, and the sisters rarely brought up that night. But secrets don't always stay secrets. Not when someone is determined to know the truth. Forty years later, Lee was ready to find out what had happened to her parents, and really, what had happened to all of them. Life had been tough growing up. Lee's mother, Nancy, was the life of the party until she'd had too much to drink. Four girls born in five years would be a lot for anybody to handle, and it seemed to be way too much for Nancy. She did love to sew for them, and she would throw elaborate birthday parties. But she didn't excel at the day-to-day responsibilities of being a mom. Unable to cope, Nancy screamed at the girls and even threw things at them sometimes. She was often hospitalized, and by the time Lee was nine years old, she was helping with cooking meals, cleaning the house, and caring for her little sisters. As they got older, the girls would take turns staying home from school just to take care of their mom, which usually meant keep her from getting drunk. That should never, ever be a job for a kid. The sisters had plenty of near misses when Nancy would drive them somewhere when she'd been drinking. Other people saw this happening, but no one stepped in to say anything. We cannot let things like that happen anymore. Nancy's extreme mood swings might today be recognized as a form of mental illness, but Lee knew there was more to her mother's behavior. When Nancy threatened to kill the family dog and the daughter who was protecting the poor creature, neighbors were called, who then in turn went and got Frank and had him come home from church choir practice. Suddenly their mother was gone again, but Lee can't remember exactly where she went or if maybe she was even just holed up in her room. Tensions just continued to build and began to boil over when Nancy lashed out at Frank, cutting him and breaking his glasses. There were also multiple suicide attempts to deal with. Was it possible that Nancy herself had set that fire? Local gossip spread that it was one of the sisters, Lisa. She'd been in trouble with the law and was getting more bold and reckless by the day. But she was also only 14 years old. Could the years of neglect and abuse have triggered an outburst that ended in a tragedy? Grab a copy of The Fire She Set and you can find out. Right now, I want to check in with author, 
speaker, life coach, and mama mentor, Phyllis Mantelli. Hey, Phyllis, thank you so much for joining us. I just love the work that you're doing and was so excited when I figured out how to fit it into a true crime podcast. Love it. Thank you for having me. You know that I feature true crime stories. The story I talked about this week uh, began as an investigation into an arson. And decades later, using new scientific technology, they figured out that it was actually an accidental fire. It's still a true crime story, though, because of the abuse and dysfunction in this family, what the sisters endured, not only at the hands of their mother, but I think their father was really culpable as well because he wasn't doing what he needed to do to step in and protect them from what the mother was doing. This was decades ago. But even today, people just don't like to get involved in other families' business. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that idea. Oh, my gosh. You just opened up a can of worms. So being a child of the 60s, that was the biggest narrative is that everything had to look pretty on the outside and nobody talked about anything on the inside. And so my mom always thought, well, if you dress right and you look right and you look perfect, then no one needs to know all the abuse or secrets that are going on inside the family. And I think that is the most damaging to the child growing up in that kind of home is that then you are from the very beginning told to lie and to hold secrets, which can be so damaging to us emotionally and mentally. And so the trauma begins there because your narrative begins with whatever you are being told. And to unwind that and to ask God, what is the truth? Like, what is my purpose? What do I do? And so these families just continue on into this lie and then sort of embellish these stories as we get older. And then, like you were saying, within this family that you were talking about, it not only trickles down into just the mother, father, and the the daughters, it's like the relationship between the daughters If you make one, the black sheep, so one girl takes the fall, right? And then that becomes truth. That just creates a whole ripple effect of trauma within the sister's relationship. And then they grow on to get married and have children of their own. There's no way you can take that trauma from your childhood. Say you want to do it differently, because I know growing up with my mom, who was very dysfunctional, had I suspect bipolar. I have realized after studying, she was a high narcissist. She was alcoholic, which you had mentioned earlier. Most alcoholics, there is some mental dysfunction there and people cover it up with alcohol or drugs because it brings them to a normal, what they consider a normal state. And so you're not just an alcoholic. It's usually there's some kind of mental anguish going on within them a lot of times. And so then you grow up and you think, well, I want to be a mom differently. And you can't because you have all of these past things within your body, within your emotional side, and it's being filtered through your motherhood to mother your children. And so unless you really dig through the bodily things that have happened to you, the physical, the emotional and mental, if you don't work through those things, you continue that thread. And that is why we have generational dysfunction is because we don't want to continue it, but it It's just a happenstance because what we grew up in is our normal. And so when it becomes normal, 
I don't think this is right, but it becomes your normal. And so then you go on and then you you try to do it differently with your kids and you got about 50% right. But you're always going to do the fallback of these different narratives and bad habits and these things that are highly dysfunctional. You will impart that into your family unless you realize where it stemmed from. And I think that's why it's so important for those of us that either haven't gone through that or have and have worked our way past it to step in when we see it yeah. in other families, because like you said, they can get so stuck yeah, that they don't know how to get out of it, even if they want to. So anybody out there that's like, well, that's not my business. Well, I don't want to step in. You know, if you don't step in, things might not ever change. Yeah. And I think it's a fine dance because what you have to realize is when you come from a family who's been very violent, who has these secrets, you don't trust other outsiders. You can't just come at them with like, I know what's going on. I want to help you. You have to go very slow because we are the keeper of the secrets. It's always the children that are the keeper of the secrets, right? When somebody approaches you and says they know you're different because you're trying to be normal and be like everyone else. And when someone calls it out, it's like a nice cut. Like it stings you. You're like, no, 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 I don't want to uncover that. It's almost like coming in and just sort of hand-holding and letting them know like, hey, is everything okay? How are you feeling today? I just noticed you look a little sad, like start very gently. You can't just go in and, and say, I know I noticed something's wrong with your family. I'll compare it to this. I would tell my husband often, I can say my mom is whatever, use a word. But if somebody else comes in and says, your mom is this or that, or your mom's an alcoholic, if someone else says it, I would feel the need to defend it, even though I knew it's the truth. So I can call her out on stuff because it's my mom. But if other people called her out, it was an embarrassment to me. It made me defend her. There's that weird kind of protection that we have over our parents, even when they're the abuser. Yes, you need to call it out, but you got to go gently with the person that you're calling it out to. You can go to other authorities, but when you're touching upon the person that's gone through that, you have to be really careful about how you word things, how you come up to them. Gaining their trust is a huge thing. You can't meet someone and a week later tell them all the things you've noticed. I am not trusting of a lot of people because I actually had things used against me. We have that kind of like, I'll be nice to you, but I'm always, I'm kind of like the reader of the room. I'm very aware. I'm street smart. So I don't walk into a room naively and go, everybody's love. God loves, you know, everyone and everybody's so great. I'm like, nope. I'm, and, that, and that is part of my trauma and that sometimes can be used against me. But it is my kind of safety net where I'm just going to read the room. I'm going to make sure I feel safe, that I trust to share something with you. And I think that's healthy, too. If you are someone who's come from abuse, you need to make sure if you're going to share your story, make sure it's with somebody that is going to hold that well. Because if they use that against you, it shuts you down even further. It makes more trauma for you. So that is something you have to build upon. That's all such great advice. I'm glad you brought up every piece of that. I've put it in other podcasts as you have to show that person that you are a safe person to talk to. And you're right. That takes some time. So be willing to invest that time. You describe yourself on your website as a mama mentor. 
our book this week had several very contentious mother-daughter relationships, and it ended up really feeding into decades of trauma and distrust. How common is that? It's so funny because when I was growing up, I thought I was the only person that had this mom that just couldn't love you, you the way you're supposed to be loved. Starting this journey of like writing my book and going into coaching and realizing there is a whole community of us that have been raised by these moms that are difficult and least and very abusive in most. We are left with collateral damage of like, well, if our own moms can't love us well, then who can love us? Searching that out and realizing like really had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with them and their past traumas. And I feel like that is an important thing to say because you are so lovable. There's nothing wrong with you. You have purpose. You have a plan. Like God's written out your story. And yes, he's walked through the fire with you. And I know sometimes people get really angry with that, rightfully so. There's a part of us where, well, I describe it like this. When my granddaughters call me and they say, mom, I need you, my heart bursts open with joy. And then there's a little rip in my heart of like, man, I didn't get that. That will never go away. It's, it's tragic. And at the same time, it's beauty. And so it's like we, we say in our coaching, it's like holding joy and sorrow in the same hand, right? There's this beautiful reconciliation with my girls. We have such a beautiful relationship. I have three grandkids that I adore and they love me. And that part is good because that's something my mom never got to experience. But the little girl in me will always mourn the mom that I didn't get. I'm huge on journaling. I always tell my women, like, start with journaling. What was the first pain point for you? And dig through that story. Don't try to dig through 50 of them. Dig through one. There was one in particular when I was eight that I wrote. It's the first chapter of my book. I wrote that chapter like it was just a Tuesday and my mom took us away from our family. Like she kidnapped us basically. And so I I just was like, oh, here's what happened, blah, blah, blah. But when I had to go into my coaching program, we actually got into therapy. We had to coach ourselves. And so I sat in a room with six women and a therapist and they said, read this story to us. I couldn't get through the first two sentences and I started crying because I remembered how that little eight-year-old girl felt. I was wrecked. And one of the girls, I'll never forget this time. This was just last year. I sat in this room and this one girl said, you lost six things that day. So I was walking home from school. It was hot and I wanted a glass of water or some Kool-Aid. I got to our house and I saw a moving van and two men carrying out our couch. We walked into the house and my mom was frantically giving directions to get the last of the furniture into this thing. And she's like, get your stuff in here. We're leaving. Let's go. We got to go to the park. We're meeting someone. And I'm like, where's my dad? What's going on? And it led us to the park. We got in a car with a stranger, which every bell and whistle is going off in my body because I've always been taught you don't get in a car with a stranger. And now she's telling us to do that. We moved to the next town and we started a new life. The backstory is my mom was having an affair and she was pregnant at 39 years old. My half sister is Filipino and Japanese, so she couldn't pass that child off as my dad's. She packed us up and took us and left. My dad was a long distance truck driver. And so he came home to an empty house and no family and had to spend the next three months trying to figure out where we were because 1965, no computers. 
landline phone, right? like no nothing. I've told that story a million times, but when I actually read that story, this person said, you lost the ability to trust your mom. You lost your dad. You lost the ability to just go home and get a cold glass of water. She just started naming these things. And I was like, you're right, but we don't dig through those stories in that way. And so I would encourage people, write the one story that comes to your mind vibrantly like that and grieve that story because that was not fair and that was wrong. And that's what I learned in that room is they were like, you have to get mad about this. I wouldn't get mad about it. It was just like, oh, well, this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. It was horrific. My mom should have sat us down and told us, here's what's happening. This is what we're going to do. You don't pull a kid out of their life. And then two days later, I'm starting a school in a brand new town. And a couple of months later, my mom's belly is getting bigger. You know, it was just like shock after shock for an eight-year-old brain, right? And so these are those kind of things that happen in these families where you're like, this is not normal and this is not healthy for these kids to to be thrown into these adult situations, also dangerous situations. Knowing now what I know, I encourage women to just dig into that little girl and give her time to grieve and breathe and let her know she's okay and you've got her and you hear her. Sometimes when we go on these types of quests for discovery and learning and growth and healing, we find things we wish we hadn't, like you did, like the author of our book did. But do you think it's still worth taking that journey, even with that pain? It's 100% worth it because I feel more free to be more myself. That's part of the secret holding, right? Is like you protect and you secret hold, but then there's parts of you that are being hidden away. A lot of times women will say, I'm so afraid if I start crying, I may never stop. I hear that a lot. And I go, well, you are going to cry a lot. But I can guarantee you at some point you will stop. And the more tears is because there's more grieving to be done. And it's necessary because when we hold all of these traumas and triggers and things in our life, we think that we're hiding it, but it spills out. When you see someone reacting really emotionally to something that you've said or something that happens and you're like, why are they so emotional about like, why did they rage about that? That's hidden trauma in their body. Something triggered it where it reminded them of the past. So when you don't clear that stuff out of your body, you have higher stress. You are going to tend to probably cover it with alcohol or food or shopping. It's not always drugs and, and alcohol. It's, it comes out in other ways. You're going to cut your own kids down because you don't want to hear it. There's no room for listening. It spills out in other areas. So you have to be able to grieve well. God will meet you in that grief. And when the time comes, he will lead you out. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I think it's worth noting that this can happen with mother figures as well. It doesn't have to be actual biological or even adoptive mothers. A lot of older women in churches want to mentor women that are younger than they are. And I've seen that be done so beautifully. And I've seen it go horribly wrong when that person is being overly judgmental, overly legalistic, and just really tearing a younger woman down for whatever their own issues are, that that is somehow making them feel better. I think leaders in churches need to be very aware 
when that sort of thing is going on, that you are stepping in if that is becoming abusive. And I think that's not something the most churches even think about, let alone try to proactively do anything about. Yeah, church hurt, hopefully moving forward with churches, is I, I feel like pastors included, but especially if you're in any kind of leadership, like you, if you're leading a small group, I would recommend that you get some kind of trauma training, knowing how to handle situations when you hear different stories. I've sat in small groups where I have watched a woman pour her heart out over some kind of grief that she's going through. And then I watched an older woman say, well, in Matthew 16, it says, and just starts going off you know, try. I get where she's coming from, but I'm like, what you did is just dismiss everything that she said. And that was really hard for her to open up. You have no idea. So I actually had mm-hmm. to put yeah. my hand on the co-leader one time and I said, can we just sit for a minute and acknowledge that what she just shared was big and just thank her for that? Because we don't need to have the right answers in churches. We always want to go to just go to God, you know, go to God, pray more. And it's like, yes, but these women are already doing that and they're still damaged. There's a connection with God and walking through grief. And in the church in particular, people don't know how to handle grief. They want to get to the happy. True. Yeah. So if they can get to the happy and show you God's love and show you God's mercy and show you how he's going to heal you completely. And I'm like, we are never healed. We're on a healing journey. I don't know one person completely healed that has never had anything bad happen. They're just like, oh, I'm healed. There are certain areas where God can heal that where it doesn't sting. That I believe. But to be completely healed, that's heaven. That's heaven. We're not there. We will be more. We have tools. So if something triggers me to this day, because it will, because I have trauma from my past, I know I can tell myself, whoa, 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 you're in the present. Don't swing off the trees. You know, you're okay. I can question myself instead of reacting. Some people cover it up with, I'm just going to pray more. I'm going to do this more. I'm going to do that. They want to do stuff, which we call behavior modification. Churches need to realize It's the same thing what we talked about earlier. They have to build trust. If they're going to be in these small groups, if you're going to be a pastor and counseling, you have to read between the lines. Somebody may be telling you a story, but if you don't know how to look at body language or what they're saying behind the words, you're not getting what they're actually trying to say to you. I'm going to say something that's probably going to be really unpopular with a lot of people. I love that. And if people don't like it, email me. Let me know what you didn't like. Let's have a conversation. Let's learn from each other. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that not everybody who volunteers in church to lead a small group or to be a mentor or, you know, whatever your equivalent of that in your church is, not everybody is equipped to do that by temperament, by training, by experience. And we don't like to tell people no. So let them do that. And then we end up being kind of complicit in people being damaged. So churches, that's something we need to work on. Yeah, I 100% agree. We need volunteers. And so people just throw people in volunteer positions because we need them. 
and that's mm-hmm. beautiful that they want to, but a lot of times they're damaged people. I mean, listen, I'm a damaged person. That's why I went into trauma coaching because I live <laughs> it and I know what that feels like. And I also want to help, but I had to help myself first. Our teacher, Carrie Scott Garcia says, you cannot take someone else where you're not willing to go. And I love that because if I'm not getting healed, then how in the heck am I going to be a coach and heal somebody else? I have my therapist is on speed dial because I want to be the healthiest version I can for everybody else. Churches need to be responsible for that. I actually did do a course with the leaders. My pastor's wife said, can you come in and talk to them before we start the sessions? This was last year. And I was so honored that she was smart enough to say, we don't know how to lead well and we need your help because I want these women, when they sit down to be in these leadership positions, to be able to listen well and respond well. Going right along with that whole idea of learning how to lead, how to be compassionate, how to be helpful, you have a resource on your website, a free resource. So everybody needs to go to the website and get this. And I'll have a link in the show notes. But it's called Tips for Setting Boundaries with Toxic Family Members. What advice, real quick as we wrap up, would you give to people who are setting boundaries, who are trying to be healthier, but the people around them are not respecting it and they're just completely running over those boundaries? And that's common because what healthy boundaries does is it disrupts the the normal of what your role is in the family, right? And so when you start changing that role in the family, you're going to get pushback. So here's the one thing I will say when people don't respect that within your family is uh, I always go back to Dr. Henry Cloud's boundaries book because he talked about a fence line and a property line. One thing I did in my family was I would go visit my mom because I had to take care of her before she passed from Alzheimer's. And so she had some hip issues, things, surgeries. And so there was a part of me that, of course, as a compassionate person, I'm not going to walk away from her, although my siblings did. But I just felt like God was telling me, this is your journey right here. And so I would go visit her. My whole thing with boundaries is, especially if you have a family, you don't let the toxic person come into your house. You just have to set that Mm. that boundary line. That property line has to be closed right there. That doesn't mean that you can't go visit them. It doesn't mean that you can't go to certain things. You have to judge it. Like it depends on what the situation is. If it's dangerous, all hands on deck. Like you're not going to go to anything. You're not going to be a part of anything. But if it's something where they're just difficult at best and they're disruptive to a place where they are toxic coming into your family, you don't need to let your family see that. So I'm just big on you hold the line. You make the rules. This is your life. You let them do what they need to do. You do what you have to do. And that is part of being an adult, as you can say, this is my life and this is what I will accept and this is what I won't. If you knock on the door, I'm not answering. Oh, that that is wonderful. I love it. And I hope people really take that to heart. It is okay to say no. You don't have to accept everything that people are trying to give you. You don't have to participate in everything people are trying to drag you into you can say no. So if someone maybe needs help with that and this is resonating with them and they want to either book you as a speaker, have you as a coach or listen to your podcast, how can people get connected with you? Yeah, so the easiest way is my website. It's phyllismantelli.com. 
And I'm on Instagram also. Our podcast is the Unmothered Podcast, and we have an Instagram for that too. The tips for setting boundaries is actually if you go to the website and sign up for the newsletter, that will come to you. Every Tuesday, I do Tuesday talks with Phyllis and just talk about different situations and different things that I'm going through. I also have a private unmothered Facebook community group. So if you answer the three questions in there, then we let you into the private group and that is growing every day. And the women in there are supporting each other. And it's just people that we get each other. Someone who it has a good mom doesn't get us, but the ones that are, have had like, <laughs> hard moms growing up were like, yep, we get each other. So they're able to pour their heart out in there. And it is so beautiful because everyone just joins in and thanks them for sharing their story and supports them. And so it's a beautiful, loving place. And we're going to be doing a lot more stuff in there in the future. What great resources, everybody. Please check those out. Share them with people that you know can really appreciate and benefit from them. Thank you again, Phyllis, for sharing just your journey with us. And I love how you've taken your journey and transformed it into service. So thank you for sharing. Oh, thanks for having me. I picked a pretty short Bible verse this week, but it packs a lot into just a few words. It's Proverbs 14.1, and I'm reading from the International Children's Bible. A wise woman strengthens her family but a foolish woman destroys hers by what she does. I think we all can admit that sometimes what we call foolishness is really rebellion. Even accounting for the potential that Nancy was dealing with some form of mental illness, she did have lucid periods when she would still put herself and her own desires above the needs of her children. Now, she had opportunities where she could have strengthened her family to whatever extent she was able. When those chances were ignored too many times, tragedy followed. We also have to ask, though, did Nancy have the support she needed to make the most of those opportunities? The book made it pretty clear that her husband felt like he'd done what he could, but it just wasn't too terribly effective. There were neighbors and family members who knew. There's even a scene in the book where store clerks watched Nancy forget one of her kids in the store, come back drunk, and then drive away with that child. No one intervened. Paul tells the church in Galatians 6.2 in the NIRV, carry one another's heavy loads. If you do, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Between addiction, possible mental illness, and having several young children to raise, it seems as though having someone help bear her burdens might have made quite a difference to Nancy. We are not meant to do life alone, but rather in community. Let's all stop and think, who in our community has a heavy load that we could help lighten. Our help might open a door to even be able to share Jesus with them. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Send me an email at lori at theunlovelytruth.com or you can message me on social media. I love it when people are willing to have those hard but impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.